Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What's the real story behind Project Blue Book? What actually happened near Roswell, New Mexico in July 1947? What is memory metal? Hello and welcome to the 781st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM. This is our 11th year on the air. I'm Ben, and those secretive questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and dad, Paul. And uh, today we welcome a new guest on a subject uh, that we should really get get more attention on. And uh, we welcome your calls today. Number is uh, 401-766-1240. That is from anywhere. And uh, you can also email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. And don't forget about Facebook. You can message us on there as well. Irina Scott received her Ph.D. in physiology from the University of Missouri, did postdoctoral research at Cornell University, has been an assistant professor at St. Bonaventure University, and has done research and teaching at The Ohio State University, the University of Missouri, the University of Nevada, and at Battelle Memorial Institute. Dr. Scott worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Aerospace Center in Satellite Photography, was a volunteer astronomer at The Ohio State University Radio Observatory, and has even taken flying lessons. Her publications include books and articles in scientific journals, uh, magazines, newspapers, and she was a correspondent for Popular Mechanics magazine. She served on the board of directors of the Mutual UFO Network from 1993 to 2000, is a MUFON consultant in physiology and astronomy, and a field investigator. Uh, she co-edited eight symposium proceedings, has been a state sec- section director for Ohio MUFON, was a founding member of the Mid-Ohio Research Associates, and its journal editor and has published UFO material in books and journals, including scientific journals, on her website, irinascott.com. So, Dr. Irina Scott, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. I should say welcome back. You've been on before, not often enough, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So, welcome back. Uh, so, let us start off with a, uh, well, maybe not so simple question. Uh, there are some of those who believe uh, that governments have been aware of UFOs as far back as ancient times. So what's your view on this, and uh, when did the U.S. government start paying attention to the strange lights in the sky? Well, um, I think the interpretation of events that would today be called UFOs might have, um, it depends on the culture and happenings that we would consider UFOs today have probably happened throughout history because there's drawings and writings about them, but nobody called them UFOs or anything from space because that wasn't in the culture. It wasn't until fairly recently that people even thought about um, beings from other planets coming here and that we thought about sending rockets to other places. And after we conceived of the idea of aliens coming, such as in War of the Worlds, then in the culture we began to interpret events such as um, fiery discs flying through the sky or things like that. We began to interpret them as aliens and UFOs and flying saucers. The first information I have, the first investigation I actually did about government and UFOs was one where 
another person I interviewed, a man named Holt, whose <coughs> cousin was Cordell Hall. Cordell Hall was the Secretary of State under President Franklin Roosevelt. He was a father of the United Nations. He won a Nobel Peace Prize. And Roosevelt wanted him to be a vice president, but he didn't run. So he has pretty good qualifications. And this is just the first, um, the very first um, investigation I had that showed some now possible knowledge of the government before Kenneth Arnold and Roswell. What Hall told his cousin was that he was um, under the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and in the sub-basement, Hall showed his cousin four large, large glass jars holding four what they called creatures that didn't look human, an erect object of some kind. We interviewed uh, Holt's two daughters, and they said that Holt told them to not say anything about it until long after they were dead. And so they told us, and they thought this happened about, that he was shown these things about um, 1939. And so it's possible the government knew something about UFOs before Roswell and before Kenneth Arnold. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So when did the U.S. government um, decide that UFOs were a na uh, national security threat, and what caused them to do that, and why? Well, I think they started investigating before Arnold. Um, There was some something called Project Saucer that started before anything else did, and this was around 1947. And there were reports like the Foo Fighters and things like that that were basically unidentified flying objects, although they didn't have a name. And they started on that. Later, they set up in 1947... They set up a project called um, Project Sign, and this was a precursor to Blue Book. They investigated quite well with this, and they even, portions of the people investigating even considered that the UFOs might be extraterrestrial. In fact, the people at Wright-Patterson considered that but the people at the Pentagon in Washington disagreed. They put out uh, good information. And in fact, one thing they put out was called the estimated situation. And in this, they theorized that what, the, what would be called UFOs or flying saucers actually were interplanetary craft. Well, all traces of that report just totally disappeared. And nobody's seen it since, but people remember what it said. Later, um, General Vandenberg rejected the idea that the phenomena might be extraterrestrial. And he set up another organization called 
Project Grudge, which also the precursor to Project Blue Book. And it was called Project Grudge because it was set up to be skeptical and debunk everything. But the UFO reports kept right on coming in. And in 1952, they set up Project Blue Book. Hmm. Okay, well... Um Huge numbers of our listeners are listening to uh, the uh, watching the dramatized version of Dr. J. Allen Hynek's research uh, every week on the History Channel. Uh, what's the real story behind Project Blue Book? And I think you and I both knew Alan Hynek. Yes, I was uh, happy to talk to him several times on the phone, and also my book contains handwritten letters, personal letters by Dr. Heinick, and I think they show a lot more about what he was like than his technical writings or um, the show, because they were basically from the horse's mouth, and they were done under informal conditions where he was just acting like himself and didn't have to put on anything. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a, a question that just popped into my head. It, it kind of pertains mostly. Um, you kind of mentioned it in the beginning after I asked the first question about sort of sort of cultural aspects that have kind of come into play, especially with you know governments knowing about the the thought of UFOs all, all um, you know extending as far back as ancient times. When was the first? When was it? When do, this is kind of an open question for either I, I, any of us here. I'm pretty sure I don't know the answer, which is. When was the term extraterrestrial first used to describe these objects? I think it was probably the first um, publication, the first um, information that was published, I think, was in Project Sign. Oh, really? Actually, I I I never knew that. Huh. Yeah. Because it's, it's interesting that we sort of assume that these objects are from outer space, just because we've never seen anything like that, you know, on Earth, so it's so it's just assumed that they're extraterrestrial. But then, where would they get the idea for it if nothing ever crashed? I've never heard the term mentioned in any literature, 19th century or forward, until the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Mm. Okay, and, and even then, that was a little fun. But it's sort of uh, maybe you have better information, Irina. But uh, it, it seems to me that that was. Uh, um, not an early term. I just meant that in, uh, not specifically extraterrestrial, I just meant that in general, that concept that they might come from space. Um, I think that came in with Kenneth Arnold. They first call him Flying Saucer because mm. he was looking like, you know, a saucer thing skipped over the water or something. But I think, um, and his first interpretation was that it was some kind of guided missile or something sent by either the United States are in foreign country. But after that, they started considering that maybe this is from other um, beings that aren't from the Earth or extraterrestrial. Mm. But as you say, the culture didn't really include that. And then it was, I guess, in a way sort of force-fed by, by the movies, of the science fiction movies of the 1950s when... Uh, you know, the Arnold thing had become... Yeah, War of the Worlds. And War of the Worlds. And all and, that. Well, that was written by H.G. Wells. Yeah, that was back in... in uh, um, 1910 or so. Yeah, actually, that's so, a good point. Yeah, so... 
Uh, but anyway, and Jules Verne was was speaking about trying traveling to other planets and the whole that's thing. true. So I mean, so. it was sort of hanging around in the culture, just on the fringes, as opposed yeah. to making its way to pop culture. And if you want to argue the uh, ancient aliens sort of thing, you can go back to ancient tribes who point to the the Pleiades or Sirius and all this. But so yeah, th- th- this could probably go way back. Let, but let's get back to let's let Irina into the conversation here. So Irina, what? Um, really happened near Roswell, New Mexico. Is the story as it's been written in the popular literature correct, or is there more to it or less to it, or was it wrong? Well, I think something definitely crashed, and I talked to the daughter of Colonel Holt, who was, who um, put the first announcement out that uh, that an alien object had crashed, and she thought that when he first put that news uh, post out, that the big shots had gotten together and said, let's publish it. We've captured a flying disc, and that's what um, was published in the paper. But then they soon got together and changed their mind. And something physical was there because, I mean, there's good hard proof of that because a person on the radio was giving a radio show uh, in Roswell and telling that the um, the debris was being sent by airplane to Wright-Patterson. And he stopped right in the middle of his broadcast and said he just called Wright-Patterson and they were expecting the plane to land any minute. Hmm. So that was hard proof as you could get that they were sending something to Wright-Patterson. See, Ben, if we'd been around in 47, that would have been on our show. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. Please continue. So there's all kinds of stories and myths and everything else, and finding out what happened is uh, a lot of people have approached it, and there's been studies of the Christ sites and minute-by-minute minute studies of what happened afterwards and everything else. Um what I do is on is that concrete thing they did send it to Wright Patterson and Roswell was the 509th which was the group that dropped the bomb on Japan dropped the bombs on Japan so they were the top military outfit there with top military intelligence and you'd think if just a weather balloon landed they would figure out this is a weather balloon and so it w- I would guess that there was something more advanced about it than weather balloon whatever landed. A very interesting fact, and, I'm, and I, I know you're aware of this, but we, we've we've done whole shows on this, especially being located here in New England, is that not too many years after the Roswell incident, the 509th Heavy Bomb Group, or it's had different names over the years, moved from New Mexico to the vicinity of Seabrook, New Hampshire, which oh. is really strange. Now, because it's not, not strange from the point of view that that's a lot closer to the Soviet Union than New Mexico is, or was. So, uh, and then there were outbreaks of all kinds of odd things that it's going on to this day. Uh, you, you and I yesterday were corresponding on one in the Boston area that had been uh, reported that you yourself experienced in 1969. Uh, so, um, I don't know, is that a coincidence or, or not, or, or have you thought much about that? We 
Day in and day out, we get reports uh, from the vicinity of Seabrook and Exeter, New Hampshire, and of course that being the famous incident at Exeter and the Betty and Barney Hill uh, matter, which occurred in 61, all in that same area. So um, what do you think of that? I mean, do you think there was any connection between the 509th moving there and, and it's, it's, it's bomb storage, things of that kind, or, or was it just a coincidence? I don't know. I guess I knew that they moved to New Hampshire. I guess I didn't know that... Um, that activity followed. It's but a circus. <laughs> that's nice to know. My sister and I had had a really, really weird sighting there in 1968. Oh, 68, south, I'm sorry. Yeah, six, and south of Boston. Yeah. And I just recently found out that there, about the huge amount of activity there. And I didn't realize that either. But we had not only saw a UFO, but we saw orbs of light or something and almost got killed by somebody during the sighting and had poltergeist experiences and everything else. And it was so weird. I happened to be working for the DIA at the time with a high security clearance, and so I didn't um, talk about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. But um, just recently I found out about all the other sightings that were going on in that area. And so we... Well, that sort of fit in with what other people have seen. Yeah, well, that's it. We have the call out, and Irina and I follow each other on Facebook uh, quite actively, and uh, we have the call out on social media for anyone who, as I as I say uh, on Facebook, the old, old timers like ourselves who may have had uh, at least know of reports or may have witnessed things in '68 or '69 in the south of Boston, uh, in the vicinity of Norwood, I believe it was. And uh, to to let us know about that if they'd like, because uh, we'd like to hear about it. Um, on the uh, the matter of the nature of UFOs arena, we um, uh, I think that you you've led us into a very interesting area, which is what is being called today crossover phenomena. People ha- and and we we've we've uh, consulted with a lot of the headliners in the UFO field on this because we believe that these things are connected uh, by means of um, flap areas and and interworld intersect points, overwashes, and overlaps so that you have what would commonly be called poltergeist phenomena associated with, for example, cases of, of uh, what are supposed to be alien abductions. Or even with sightings, uh, you even have cryptids that somehow show up. And whether that's coincidental, we doubt it because we're investigating six different areas um, here in, in the UK that have to do with uh, these what appear to be overlaps. And you've got uh, Big Ford and you've got strange lights, uh, uh, craft even, uh, ghosts, I mean, you name it, all in the same area and quite actively. So what are your thoughts on that? When you were having poltergeist activity uh, at the same time, what, um, what, what did that bring to mind as far as an explanation or, or, or did it? Well, I'd like to mention something about our sighting. This was on July the uh, 13th, 1968. Okay. And one part of our sighting was we saw the object Circle Norwood Memorial Airport for about 20 minutes. And that was something real odd because, well, my sister and I just stood there and looked at it and kept saying, do you see this, and comparing notes. And I was just wondering if anybody ever remembered anything of anything odd circling the airport. Well, uh, let's repeat that. As a matter of fact, we'll give her, I, mean, I suppose it's, you have to go back a ways to, to have had that. Uh, memory, but uh, again, people are welcome. And Norwood is is uh, kind of within our our listing area here, so we'll 
certainly give the number uh, 401-766-1240 uh, and anyone is, is welcome to call in or to write to us later um, as a matter of fact we, we can put your contact and your email if, if that's okay on uh, on our website with with the show information and people can write to you directly but we've got the call out on that although I had the wrong year you said 68 and then I saw somewhere else 69 J- July 13th but we'll, we'll correct that and uh, uh, I think the people are a few people have already written in with some information, so we'll share that with you, you know, off the air. So, uh, okay. So um, now, when exactly was the secrecy lid clamped down on UFOs? Not necessarily just the Roswell case, but um, was that was that the stimulus for the uh, the clampdown? I don't know because I had a question in my first book, UFOs today, that it might have there might have been some secrecy before even. Kenneth Arnold, that people, the government might have suspected something, because what he uh, reported was so odd that these, uh, he saw these objects flying over the speed of sound, cal- carefully calculated their speed and everything. Well, this the government should have been interested in that, and they should have, he interpreted it as either from our government or from other government, and the government should have thought, well, maybe these are from Russia or something. Mm. Instead, they just seem to ignore the whole thing. And I discussed that in detail in my first book, that why would the government not pay attention to those things unless maybe they knew something about it ahead of time. Yeah. We have a uh, question from our very faithful listener in South America, and that's Peter. And he uh, has two questions for you, which I'd like to discuss, and then we'll take our break and then get into uh, your books. Sure. Okay. So, uh, Peter writes to us, uh, Hi, Paul. Uh, please ask Dr. Arena uh, to elaborate on these topics from her book, Inside the Lightning Ball. Uh, the first one is the seismic analysis of a mysterious sound heard throughout a portion of the U.S. during the 1973 international UFO wave. Okay. I'm still working on that. Fair um, enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting wave. It was... Um, the sound was heard October the 11th, um, 1973, at night, approximately 8.45 to 9 o'clock over a really wide area of the country. And it's been compared to um, an earthquake and sonic booms and things. But I've been looking at clippings and things from different newspapers across the area and it was heard during uh, over quite a wide area maybe as wide as 400 miles or something which is not um, it, it, people have said well it's an airplane sonic boom but I checked on the airplane sonic booms and they're about one mile for every a thousand feet and so a uh, sonic boom from an airplane would be about, if the airplane was like at 80,000 feet, it would be about um, 40 miles on either side and that sort of thing. So it wouldn't be 400 miles. Mm. And this was just a huge sound heard over a big area. And at that time, right then, suddenly there was just a huge, massive uh, sightings of UFOs right then. One important one was the Pascagoula. Oh, I know. We had Calvin Parker on the show not long ago. 
Yeah, and I'm trying to write up information that this was just a part of a huge wave, maybe the biggest one that you ever had. Yeah, they always but, are. They're always bigger than they seem. Yeah, and so um, I'm still studying that sound. It was on seismographs, but it wasn't exactly where it was expected to be. A uh, person, a debunker, um, attacked some of my work and said, well, this is an SR-71, and it was an SR-71, but it was... A very advanced it, aircraft that was used for spying and things of that kind, yeah. Yeah, it was after the U-2, and this one, you know, they just routinely flew it at um, three times the speed of sound and that sort of thing. But I was carefully studying the um, sonic boom carpet one of those would make, and it didn't line up with the sound. Um, and there wasn't any uh, evidence for an earthquake or anything. And so the sound seemed to be just occur at the same time as a sudden just really abrupt upsurge in UFO sightings. Okay. And the fact just started all of a sudden like that, just wow. Okay, uh, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break, and uh, we'll be right back with our tremendous guest, Irina Scott, Dr. Irina Scott. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful but slightly wet Blackstone River Valley today. We'll be right back. Okay, well, that was a cute little jingle, uh, seeing as we were talking about sound uh, before the break. Ironic, anyway, huh? Yes. <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, Paul, Paul and Ben Eno here, uh, Behind the Paranormal, on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM. And uh, let's get back to our tremendous guest, uh, Dr. Irina Scott, on the subject of UFOs, cover-ups, and what's going on behind the scenes. Um, now, we have a second question. Indeed from uh, Peter from uh, Columbia, South America. So the next thing he kind of wanted you to uh, take a swing at uh, to elaborate on is uh, lights on people before missing time events. Yes, and um, this is something I, I've i tried to study a little bit and am doing some more work. It, there's a lot of examples of when there's missing time or an abduction that one of the first things that happens is that the person that it happens to sees a light. And, for example, in um, Walter Webb's book about Buff Ledge, he said that a beam of light focused on UFO witnesses often precedes impressions of missing time induction scenarios. Well, I've gone through 
a number of cases, the famous abductions and others, where the initial thing that happened was the witnesses or the people, abducted people or missing time people, see light ahead of time. And, for example, Betty Adreeson, who was stayed by Raymond Fowler, usually when they report abductions, they report the object and being taken in and beings. But usually, it's not mentioned too hard, but usually there's something about a light. And I think in Betty Adreeson, there was a light shining through the window. In Kathy Davis of Bud Hopkins, the Copley Woods book, one of the first things the witness noticed was strange lights. And then later, they found a big trace of burned vegetation. And then later, she reported an abduction under hypnosis. And a lot of the other abductions in missing time showed just a strange light. And, for example, another one from 1973 during that flap was a coin helicopter event. And here, very close to where I live, actually, along the same freeway, the pilot coin was flying a helicopter. And this is a pretty famous UFO event, although it wasn't considered an abduction, although it might have been. But this UFO came over the helicopter and showed a green light in the helicopter. And what was odd was that the helicopter suddenly, it was about to crash. It was trying to avoid the object. And suddenly it rose quite a few thousand feet up in the air when the green light was shown on it. And it also caused some electromagnetic effects in the helicopter, too. Another one was the Schumer abduction, where this policeman was abducted. I forget which year it is. But a green light was shown on him, and suddenly he was inside a UFO. And sometimes these lights seem to precede an abduction or missing time, or they even seem to have tractor beam characteristics. And so I've just been keeping tabs on how often abduction reports, first of all, begin with a light shown on them. I kind of just very vaguely theorized that maybe this has something to do with lasers or something, that it may advance, very advanced lasers may be able to make people see things or affect people's minds or things. Sure. Okay. Before we move on to the next question, and thank you, Peter, for writing. You always send very articulate and intelligent questions, and we appreciate that. Irina, tell us about your website and your books and where people can find out more before we proceed. Okay. My website is irinascott.com. Just write Irina Scott, and it should pop up. And it shows all my books. My books are UFOs Today, Inside the Lightning Ball, and Sacred Quarters. 
And if anybody wants to order them, they just get on my website and click on any of the books, and that'll take you right to uh, Amazon.com where you can order them. Okay. All right, good. All right, uh, so let's uh, let's move on to the next question. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, there in Ohio, uh, what, is it... Uh, is its reputation as a place for storage of alien bodies and craft and everything else uh, well-deserved, or is that overblown, or is it a cover for something else? What's happening there? Well, I think it started because the some form of debris was sent from Roswell to Wright-Patterson, and there's a lot of different stories about what happened at, at um, Roswell from that. Um if there was debris, it would be a logical thing to send to Wright-Patterson because um, Wright-Patterson, and also he said Wright-Patterson sent it to Battelle Memorial Institute. Well, Battelle Memorial Institute had the country's, many of the country's top metallurgists. Mm. They were Manhattan Project, and um, it was a big thing there. And so if they wanted to an- analyze metal, and they simply agreed to Wright-Patterson, Battelle Memorial Institute's maybe about 70 miles away. Yeah, right up by 70. Yeah. And so that would be a logical place to send it. And there are a number of stories at Battelle that they sent um, debris. And there's also a lot of stories that they sent um, bodies, too. And so I, I had been... Uh, right, Patterson is very, very, very secure, and maybe just a very few ufologists have even been in Wright Patterson in the secure area. Mm. And I was fortunate to have been, and so I could. Um, I read other people's stories about informants that said that where the bodies were stored and everything else, and I was there, and I could drive around. And look at the buildings where people said um, it might be stored or where there were crypts underneath and things. And explore that aspect. Um, I was scared to walk into a building because I was afraid <laughs> I'd get in trouble. And some people <laughs> have. And so um, I didn't do exploration of being inside buildings, but I was inside the um, what's called a blue room. And it's the... Um, there was a really secret area of Wright-Patterson in connection with UFOs, and it has a story that Barry Goldwater was turned away from it, and Edgar Hoover and everybody else. I heard that, yeah. And I didn't know I was um, in it. It was um, the archivist at Wright-Patterson showed another person and I in the building. It's the NASAC building. And he took us to a meeting about UFOs in the building. Hmm. But at that time, I didn't know this was considered the blue room. It, I mean, it's the, I think it's, the blue room was way back, and this is the, um, what it evolved into. Um, it, but I was in there and found out later it was what was termed the blue room. And so I was actually in it. But, um, I just went to the meeting from the outside, and I didn't. 
I was strongly escorted, so I didn't walk around or take pictures or anything. Oh, right. oh yeah, yeah. But it just looked like a normal office building, the part I saw. But apparently there's okay, there's been stories ever since the beginning of UFOs that that's where bodies and debris is stored or that there's a um, chamber underneath it that is where all this debris is stored. Well, I did some work in the military, too, but I dare say my clearance was substantially lower than yours. However, you know, one does learn that very often, uh, that first of all, you're not, to, you don't have access to every information just, just because you have a clearance. It, it, it's core mission and need to know only. Right? And it's very strictly controlled that way. Uh, but at the same time, um, I, I don't know, you, you just don't, um, you realize that, that, uh, very, very often things are, are, um, misdirected, okay? Uh, they'll put out the story from an accurate source or even inaccurate source that, that, uh, you know, there's UFO stuff being stored at the base and there's really something entirely different going on. So I've always found it very difficult, very difficult to, to, to track a lot of these things down and you can't believe much of what you hear from any source. So that's my opinion. Yes, I found, uh, some evidence for possible underground chambers which is in all the stories. Uh, for example, I found one building with really big doors and a big ramp where trucks could enter. And according to the informant data, there were um, elevators that took trucks underground to these big storage areas. And over one of the reported storage areas, I was able to be there and photograph it being dug up. But I didn't go out of the car and look down a hole to see how far yeah. the digging went. So I just had that. I took the pictures of the digging in the uh, machines and the piles of dirt, but I didn't know where it went except that it was where the re- one of the reported um, crypts was. And also, they a lot of literature has said that um, the UFO debris is stored in a crypt where they used to store um, photographic material. Well, I found that there was, that there actually was a big temperature controlled crypt where they stored old movies, where the um, government stored the original films from old movies, and that that was very temperature controlled and everything else. I think they moved them, though, mm-hmm. and so that might have been one of the crypts, but... Um, under the NASAC <coughs> building, it was it was in a secured area, but it had its own security. Just huge amounts of security that you couldn't believe. I mean, it was like every blade of grass around it was had monitors, and yeah. its monitors extended from the building. And so I always wondered if they monitored uh, crypts underneath the building. Possibly. Uh, we probably, I don't know if we'll ever know, but uh, speaking of the Battelle Memorial Institute, uh, which, as we say, is just up I-70 from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the, it, it's a, it's always struck me as a strange, and you work there, so you, could, you can fill us in, but an odd mixture of medical research and defense and national security systems and then some commercial stuff. Uh, what did you do when you were at Battelle, if you can talk about it, and when can you tell us about the place, um, what can you tell us about the place when it comes to UFOs? You've already done some of that. but What I was doing was mainly pharmacokinetics and studying um, the effects of 
pesticides in bodies and on um, the environment. So this had nothing to do with UFOs. Yeah. I met a lot of people there, that, real old-timers that um, knew about UFOs. And a part of Project Blue Book took place at uh, Battelle. And one thing that always interests people was is that um, the main part of Project Blue Book that people know about is the investigation of sightings, and that's, for example, what's in the History Channel um, program. Mm. It's Dr. Hyatt going out and talking to people, investigating and everything. And that's what made, generally made the news. But what um, they did with that information didn't make much news, and that was done at Battelle. And in this case, they um, developed a, a questionnaire to get real precise information from people that made UFO sightings or descriptions so that they could get discrete elements such as how many they saw or how long it took or what color. And feed this, they made a, they had about 13,000 observations and they called that down to about uh, 3,000, which is still a lot and put the data in a computer and did a statistical study. And that was done at Battelle. And one thing that was interesting about that was that um, it pertained to um, making the questionnaire and doing the statistical study. But what Battelle, um, the actual investigators for this were metallurgists. But the study was um, done very well. And it showed a real high probability that UFOs are real and not misidentifications. Okay. Hmm. All right. When the the entire um, conversation we've had uh, is considered as a whole, I think it's it's some pretty amazing stuff. But I did want to go back to your own experience, uh, and I believe your sister was with you in 1968 when that experience took place south of Boston. Can you tell us more about it and whether before that or after yet that during your life you have had other such experiences, whether they be UFO-related, poltergeist, anything that might be called paranormal? Yes. Um, when my sister and I were really young, years before we ever heard of UFOs, we had a weird experience as kids um, she was about four and I was about six. And we were on an isolated farm with hardly anybody around, just family, family farm. The houses were too far apart to see. It was a summer night clear. And we saw this thing flying around. I just woke up and saw this thing flying around our bedroom in the inside. And it flew around for a while. It seemed to change. It was just like it was kind of browsing like it was looking at us and it got close to us several times and it went up and down and around and all that and I didn't know she was awake at the time and I was just thinking what earth is this thing and I realized it was sort of guided that it would fly to toward the wall or toward the furniture and then it always turned before it hit anything and um, then it did some other things and we ran out of the room terrified but we found out um, I mean, then I found out she was uh, seeing it too. But many years later, I read Jenny Randall's, who said, talked about bedroom visitations and bedroom lights, that people who 
have repeated UFO sightings often start out as kids with something in their bedroom. And we fit that, although at the time we knew nothing about UFOs and it was years before I realized that might have had something to do with UFOs. But usually that happens to one person, and in our case it happened to both of us. And then later we had other sightings, and one of them was at Boston. And in this case... Uh, I was working for the DIA with all kinds of security clearances, and she was taking postgraduate work at um, Drew University in New Jersey, and we decided to drive up along the coast to see the New England states. And so we drove up to Boston. We um, got there while it was still daylight. We drove up to New Hampshire just to look around. And, um, actually, we were on the same places. Some of the hill abduction took place, but... Wow. Back to Boston. We didn't know that at the time either. And um, came back to Boston and couldn't find a place to stay in the middle of Boston, so we were going around. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't know. It was before <laughs> um, cell phones or anything. And so we were heading out of Boston, and we began to see this object south of us. And we could look south, and we could see the airplanes going into um, Norwood. You may saw airport. Um, they were small airplanes, but we could see them turning on their landing lights and their, you know, red lights and green lights blinking and everything, and landing. And lower than that, we kept seeing this object. And my sister kept saying, this is something weird. And I kept saying, it's a helicopter blinking its lights. And um, so we kept arguing. And at that time, both of us admitted to each other that we'd seen UFOs, and we'd never talked about it because we got in trouble if you said things like that. Mm. And so we continued, um, and we, then we were on Route 95 heading, um, we got off, we went on the outer belt 128 at that time. Oh no, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, the light just went out. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, we were on Route 95 going around Boston, and we were, there was a woods, we were going through the woods, and on one side of the um, car, we saw this light, and it was like a see-through basketball or something. It was like glass that you could see through, and there was light on the inside that went through a spectrum like of blue and different shades of red. And so we went past the, the inside of our car lit up in green. And then um, we kept on going, and my sister started yelling at me to stop, 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 stop. And so I did, and I was going to say, see, it's a helicopter. And then it came over the trees, and it definitely wasn't a helicopter. It was this big thing that we could see seven things that looked like windows. They were square, and there was a real bright light coming out of it, and they were blinking in sequence. And you'd probably say, this is a blimp. Well, we grew up on a farm here that had the freeway Route 71 going right through it. And um, it was also a blimp route at that time. And we were really used to seeing blimps around freeways and at night and blimps with lighted sides and everything. And we knew, you know, we were familiar with that. And so this was nothing like a blimp. It was soundless. And I, was, I got the camera out and I had some high-speed film and so I was going to take a picture of it. And I got my camera lined up and everything. I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going to get the picture of it inside of a UFO. Nobody's ever done that. And I was thrilled. And this 
truck driver stopped and came up beside me and asked me, what are you looking, what are you doing, and what are you looking at? And I thought he was, you know, just helpful or something. And so we pointed at this big thing, and he turned in exactly the opposite direction, just rotated around, looked in the opposite direction, and said he didn't see anything. Then he rotated back and looked at me. And then he said, what are you doing? And we pointed again. And then he rotated around, looked in the opposite direction, and said he didn't see anything, and came back, and then he pointed his head like I was, you know, I insinuated me that he was saying I was crazy. And he went back to his truck. And at that time, that's when we saw the object begin to circle the airport. And it had a particular blinking pattern. And in one part of the circle, it would go so fast you couldn't see it. And then it would blink in sequence. And it kept on doing this about 20 minutes. And at that time, I decided to turn my car around because I didn't know which direction the object was going to go. And we were trying to figure out what on earth this thing was because it doesn't wasn't anything like an airplane or a blimp or anything else. So I got on the freeway. The man, the truck driver, got right in behind me and began chasing us. And he got right on my bumper, showing his bright lights into my car mirror so that I couldn't see a thing, and chased us. And I would switch lanes and slow down, speed up, and he just stayed right on my bumper, so I knew he was chasing us. Mm. I thought we were going to die. I said goodbye to my sister, who I don't think realized how much trouble we were in. And so finally I decided the only way to get rid of him would be to just suddenly swerve off the left-hand side of the road from when I saw an intersection. And so this was real dangerous because somebody was coming faster on the right-hand lane. We'd have been dead. But I did that, and we got away from him. And I came back up, and the object was still circling the airport, and so I came up, um, and then it's headed northwest, and we headed, um, the roads went north and south and east and west. And I went past the thing with the um, the lights, and the inside of the car lit up in green again. And then finally we were on this real old gravel road that had bumps and houses a long ways away and where you couldn't turn around. And I couldn't keep up with it. It was just a little faster, so I came back. And then um, on the way back, I did not see the green, the light or the green thing. It apparently wasn't there then. And so we went back to um, uh, New York and Drew. And then the next night I went back to Washington. And then I had a poltergeist experience after that. Huh. So the whole thing was so weird uh, you know, I just didn't believe it, and it was years and years and years before I talked about doing my security clearance. I didn't report it or say anything. Yeah, yeah, you were care- you were always careful about that sort of thing. Yeah. You didn't want to lose your clearance. Yeah. Well, one of the possible explanations, just briefly, because we're almost out of time for that, is uh, the poltergeist thing, is perhaps it's not any kind of entity doing anything, but the energies uh, surrounding you for... Uh, exposure to whatever it was you were exposed to at, at the intersect point. So, but but who knows? Well, we're just about out of time, Marina. And uh, uh, Ben, I don't know. I'm sorry I didn't let you get in here, but no, it's fine. I mean, you, okay. I wanted on a roll. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to end with a uh, a message that we just received from a Rick in San Francisco. Uh, he said, "Great guest today. Arena is a treasure." So. <laughs> There we are. That sums it up. Rena, we're going to have you back really soon. Give us your website one more, one more time, please. IrenaScott.com, I-R-E-N-A-S-C-O-P-T.com. 
Very good. Okay, we'll talk to you soon, and uh, thanks for a great show. And we've got some info to send you on uh, um, the social media information uh, on what you asked. So we'll uh, be talking to you soon. And good luck with the weather out there. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. You'll be getting it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Away. exactly. <laughs> okay, Ben, so take us away here. So... If you have any friends, family members, coworkers, whoever that that has tastes that run to the strange and unexplained, you can try giving them a copy of one of our autographed books. Um, then you can uh, check those out. Our latest titles include the uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know Is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal Two, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of. Uh, they're available online retailers and some stores. But if you want autographed copies, you can only get those from BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, our next event will be on April 23rd at 1 p.m. We'll be back at the Town of Prospect Senior Center in Connecticut for a presentation, and we'll keep you posted as details develop. That's a, that's a, doesn't sound like it, but that's a hopping place. It's, mm. We have tremendous audiences there, and it's open to the public. So Fair enough. So next comes the X-Filers United uh, 2019 convention, set for uh, April 26th through the 28th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in uh, Warwick, Rhode Island. Uh, this event covers all areas of the paranormal, UFOs, ghost phenomena, cryptids, and more. Along with us, speakers will include our uh, popular guest co-host, Shane Searway, fi- uh, filmmaker Alexander Petikoff, UFO researcher and experiencer Mike Stevens, along with America's youngest recognized cryptid expert, Colin Schneider. And uh, famous uh, medium Gary McKinstry is going to be there, author uh, Susan Brunel, UFO experiencer Tom Reed, and a number of other big names. It's going to be a big weekend, and uh, we'll give you more details as they firm up. And that is... Uh, xfilersunited.com that's x-f-i-l-e-r-s united.com events later this year will include appearances at the National New Hampshire Public Library in August along with the Exeter UFO Festival and the Greater New England UFO Conference in the fall Uh, at some point this fall also there will be a release party for my next book Dancing Past the Graveyard Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds and God which will be published in hardcover this fall by uh, Schiffer Books, I guess under their Red Feather imprint, and we'll keep you posted on that as details develop. And at some point this fall, there will be a release party for my dad's next book, Dancing Past the Graveyard. Uh, I already said that. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Well, Uh, you use the... uh you know, your own point of view. <laughs> I, su- I suppose so. Yeah, say it in your own yeah. words, Ben. Right. <laughs> so don't forget about that. Also in the works uh, is our third book. This is where I meant to come in. Uh, we're welcome, uh, or well, we're writing together, and uh, this this one will be on the subject of UFOs beyond the assumptions. You can check out our show website once again, behindtheparanormal.com, and all sorts of good stuff on there. 800 free shows uh, uh, that were recorded over 10 plus years on the air, including a four and a half year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. I also check out the links to the charities on our show um, that we, we support. So Ben, what uh, lurks around the corner for next week's show? So next week, uh, the first weekend of March, March. 3rd here on WON, 1240 AM, 99.3 FM. We'll uh, have that weird uh, but zany story from the 1930s England, uh, Get the Talking Mongoose with, uh, or Geff? Geff, is that it? I believe it's Geff. I always thought it was Geff, yeah. Maybe it's Jeff. Who knows? But with author and researcher Tim Schwartz. Okay, well, no time for the quote this week. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.